On today's episode, we have a nutrition Q&A with Stephanie Natchek. Welcome to the Run Smarter podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. It was last year that I had Stephanie Natchek on the podcast, just in case you think that name rings a bell. Um, the ep- it was episode 233. The topic was race weight fueling and helping GI issues. And she is a wealth of knowledge and about to start her own podcast. She has the Fuel Run Recover podcast, which by the time this airs, she'll have um, a handful of episodes out. Um, talk about nutrition for runners. And so it's right up the alley for everyone here. And I thought this would be a good idea to do a listener Q&A. As always, I posted onto the patrons, the ones who are contributing to this podcast and um, see what questions they have and they get priority. And then if I need a few more, uh, I'll just ask the main feed. I'll ask Instagram, Facebook, Facebook. the Run Smarter Facebook group and just to fill out what the episode template would be. And so thanks to everyone who submitted your questions. Um, I do sub- I do ask all the patron questions, but sorry if I didn't get to your um, specific question on the, the main, the regular sort of feeds and socials. Um, but there are a lot of questions to get through. Um, if you do want to have priority and if you want to support the podcast, patrons are contributing five Australian dollars per month. And... Um, yeah, you can do that. There's a sign-up link in the show notes of every episode and um, on the website and that sort of stuff. But we have, we're have we covering a ton of different questions. We're t- covering things to help you recover, both after racing, what to eat beforehand, what about supplements and all those sorts of things. And Stephanie was a wealth of knowledge and not only answers the question, but then... <laughs> delivers a few other nuggets alongside that as well. So you're going to love this episode and nutrition is always a popular topic. So let's take it away. Stephanie, welcome back to the Run Smarter podcast. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be back. Give us, um, for those who haven't uh, met you or listened to the first episode, would you be able just to give us a bit of an intro? And then for those who have listened to your first podcast, maybe give us a bit of a um, rundown of what you've been up to since then. 
Yeah, absolutely. So for those of you who have not met me or anyone who needs a little bit of a refresher, my name is Stephanie Natchuk. I am uh, from Canada and I'm a dietitian who specializes in performance nutrition for runners. So I work with runners of all different levels to help them fuel for better performance, uh, fuel for faster recovery, and really also fuel for optimizing body composition as well. Excellent. And what's been new? Yeah, so um, since since we would have spoken um, last spring, um, things have been really busy around here. So we've had you know lots of growth with uh, you know the Fuel Train Recover program, um, where I see lots of runners coming through to work on their nutrition, work on their training and their recovery strategies. And what I've also been able to create as well is the fuel train recover or the, the fuel for runners course, which is just taking the, the nutrition part of this and kind of breaking it out for people who just really want that, that nutrition help and that nutrition guidance. And just a few days before we've started this recording, I have launched my own podcast, uh, the fuel run recover podcast, which is, you know, really all about the same thing as just helping everyday runners work on their fueling strategy, their training strategy, their recovery strategy, so that they really can become the best runner they can be. Excellent. And it's, it's kind of the same career path in a sense for me as well. Like, I think niching down to just addressing the runners. Um, I think that's sort of what I do. So I'm a physio that just treats runners. Um, and then you've just focused that on your particular niche, uh, which I love. And I know that like nutrition is a popular topic when it comes to runners. Um, so I know that your podcast is going to do very well and be very popular. Um, it seems that for whatever reason, whenever I ask questions to my, um, the Run Smarter Scholars or the patrons, there's, it seems to be just come in droves when it comes to nutrition and why would you have a particular reason why do you think that is yeah you know a few a few things come to mind and you know i i agree with your point that you made about kind of niching down and, and even for me as a dietitian you know starting off as a bit of a jack of all trades dietitian then wanting to do sport specifically and then it's like well, what kind of sport and and now really getting into um you know sort of these ideal clients that we can be so impactful with but i think that the reason why nutrition is such a hot topic and why there's so much confusion is because honestly, the vast majority of nutrition information that we find, you know, out there, whether it's on the internet or we hear from friends or our doctors or whatever it might be, is not running specific. And so that leads to a lot of very confusing and conflicting information that people are exposed to where they're, you know, reading an article in the newspaper or reading a blog post that somebody shared on Facebook or something that their doctor or their their friend told them to do, but then they look at the running nutrition content that people like us share and it's completely different than what they're hearing everywhere else and so it just leaves people sometimes with more questions than answers about what they should be doing. Do you think there's also with that information being completely different is there also some scope to say that it could be completely different in the running population based on gender, age, um, you know, goals, what races they do, all that sort of stuff? 
Oh, totally, totally. I mean, you know, you look at someone who is running five kilometers a few times a week or someone who's running ultra marathons and both of these people are runners. And, you know, we always say like, if you run, you are a runner. But even when you look at that community of people, you have all of these different, you know, individuals and with nutrition as a whole, we really are moving towards more personalization. And and maybe you find that too in the physiotherapy world where it's like, you know, we started off having these specific guidelines and recommendations. And then it's like, well, what about all the people who don't fit into that? And, and so more and more of our guidelines I have found over the years have been getting more, uh, including more language about personalization. It's like start here and then figure out what works best. And it, it always needs to be a journey for each individual. Hmm. I like that. I like the start here. Like these are the basics. These, this is the foundation. This is where you should start. And then based on your goals, based on individual circumstances, then you can make these finer adjustments, but you know, learning the foundations is pretty key. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, for each of us understanding that looking externally to what everyone else is doing or, or what everyone else says that we should do isn't always going to be the best path. You know, we really need to kind of take all of that with a grain of salt because the people that are sharing their personal experiences or, you know, what works for them, we have to understand that, that we are different and not even just in how much training we're doing or what kind of training we're doing, but exactly like you said, I mean, we have to look at age and gender and and goals and all of that with it too. So I think part of it is also just Mm -hmm. getting more comfortable and confident with taking all that information, but ultimately making our own decisions about how we want to navigate things. Yeah. Well said. All right. Let's dive into some of these questions because I thought it'd be nice to structure this episode around the patrons and um, the audience submitting some nutritional questions. And so the first one we had was from Jen and asks, are there any benefits to collagen supplements, um, especially for tendon health? And if it is beneficial, do you recommend any particular products? Yeah. Okay. So I'm really, really excited that this question came up again, because I don't know if you remember, but when I looked back at my notes from the episode we did a year ago, we talked about collagen last year. And this is really exciting for me because my answer to the question has changed since we last spoke. Yes, we have some really interesting updates in terms of of the research and and what's sort of been happening um, with collagen and with tendon health, joint health, et cetera. So what I did want to start with, though, is just giving a little bit of an overview of the uh, protein metabolism and talk a bit about why Previously, I was a lot less excited about collagen supplements and and why I really wasn't promoting them or kind of getting on board with everyone taking them. And this is because when we consume protein from any source, our body breaks down those proteins into the individual pieces that are called amino acids. And so whether you eat protein from a plant or from an animal, whey protein, collagen protein, fish protein, chicken protein, bean protein, doesn't really matter. Once those proteins hit your digestive system, they're broken down into these individual amino acids, and then they're absorbed, and then our body makes new proteins. All of our body cells require protein, all of our enzymes and and transmitters and, and everything require protein. We then rebuild the proteins that we need. So this idea that by taking a collagen supplement, we could increase the collagen 
in specific tissues in our bodies just didn't make a lot of sense from a metabolism standpoint because we don't absorb and utilize intact proteins from food in that way. But what's been interesting is some of the newer research has been looking at does taking collagen as a supplement increase our body's production of collagen? So are we able to take this as a supplement and then see an impact of those specific amino acids being utilized specifically to make more collagen or to, you know, improve things like cartilage health and, and cartilage thickness. And yeah, in, in some of the studies that are being done where we are seeing that people are able to, um, you know, reduce joint pain, they're able to see actually a thickening of some of these tissues as a result of uh, collagen supplementation. But I also will say um, gelatin supplementation as well was part of it because uh, collagen is broken down into gelatin. And so either or was shown to be effective in some of these studies. Excellent. And is when it comes to tendon health, is that looking at like pain or function or just return to activities? Like, is there any specific outcomes or? Um, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so definitely like pain and looking at also um, like MRI scans to look at thickness as well. And so this mm. like regeneration of, of these tissues. And so the specific dose that we're looking for here would be between 15 and 20 grams of collagen or gelatin powder specifically. And I wanted to make that clear and, and sort of emphasize that only because if you look at some of the other products, like the capsules or the gummies that are on the market, they have microscopic amounts of actual uh -huh. collagen or gelatin in them. So you do have to be like mindful of the portion size, uh, mindful of how much you're getting per dose. Cause if you take a couple of gummies that have a few micrograms each or a few milligrams each, you're not going to get anywhere with that. Other hmm. key is that we need vitamin C paired up with these collagen proteins in order to um, actually improve our ability to create collagen synthesis and, and to have it uh, make these improvements. And so we also want to ensure that we're getting a, a source of vitamin C in our diet. So, you know, of course, fruits and vegetables are the best way to get that. Excellent. Um, and this follows up with Dave's question who um, asked about the same collagen supplements and said, is the timing of taking these supplements when it comes to rehab, um, is there, should we do, should we time these at different intervals. So before or after exercise or during exercise, um, is there anything around that? Yeah. So that's a really, really great question. Cause that's something that we always want to keep in mind with any supplement is what's the optimal dose and what's the optimal time. Uh, before I answer that though, I just wanted to, um, throw one wrench into everything that I just shared about collagen and, and how maybe we're seeing some improvement. Maybe we're seeing some excitement here in the area is that whey protein was also beneficial in helping improve tendon size in response to strength training. And the benefit there is that, you know, the whey protein includes all of the same amino acids that collagen does, but also has the added benefit that it has more leucine in it, which is one of our branch chain amino acids, which is really important for helping us to build new muscle tissue. So the take home message is of course, get enough protein as a whole in your diet first. Then if you do have a history of injuries, you do have a, an issue with, um, you know, whether it's like knee issues as a result of reduced cartilage, you know, like osteoarthritis, that kind of thing, uh, tendon issues, then if you're going to be purchasing a protein supplement either way, maybe collagen would be a good choice for you. 
or you can eat an entire box of Jello per day to get the same <laughs> amount of that 15 to 20 grams of gelatin wow. powder. That That's another option. Um, so when we look at, at the research and what they did in terms of timing, you know, the timing of the particular studies that I'm talking about, they took the supplement one hour before training, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that is the ideal time. That's just what was done in, in that particular study. And there was a benefit. So consistency though is important. So you would want to probably take that one at about the same time each day and, and just, you know, whatever time you choose to take it, but one hour before was shown to be effective. Okay, excellent. Uh, I'm glad you pointed out the needs to have your normal recommended protein first and then just have this as a supplement to go on top yes. of that. So that's um, a really key lesson. Good work. It is. Um, and I think that when it comes to, you know, just the term supplement, and, and I know we have another really good question about supplements coming up, we have to remember that these are always going to be over and above that foundation of a solid diet. Because if we aren't getting enough total protein and we're just supplementing with something like collagen, which is not a complete protein, right? It's only made up of three amino acids. It is not a complete animal protein source. Then we are going to be missing out on the bigger picture of everything we need to keep the rest of our tissues healthy. So if we're not getting enough protein at baseline and we're thinking that we can just make that up by, by using a scoop of collagen protein, but we're not really eating well the rest of the day, we're probably going to be really disappointed with our results. Whereas if we have yeah. a really good baseline diet that does include adequate protein as a whole, and then we are maybe adding a little bit of something like collagen or, or you know, of any other supplement on top of that, that's where we're going to see the greatest impact and effect. Okay. Yeah. I think we do ask Craig's question, the other um, supplement question, just to help with the flow, I guess, of this Q&A. Yeah. So Craig asks, um, when it comes to, he says, Amazon has many sports nutrition supplements and claim to help with VO2, uh, provide amino acids. Um, he said BCAA, which I'm not sure what that is, but um, he asks what ones, what products should he avoid, um, or should he just eat real food? So first of all, can you maybe just describe what, what the BCAA is, and then we can dive into the, the question? Yeah. So that's our branch chain amino acids. Ah, I see. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Answer away. <laughs> yeah. So supplements always need to be considered on a case-by-case -case basis, because generally there's always going to be a time and a place where most of these can be useful. But just like we talked about with overall nutrition targets and nutrition goals, depends on the runner, depends on their diet, depends what phase of training they're in or what training cycle they're in. And so there are some that actually do have some pretty solid evidence to support their use, but that doesn't mean that they have evidence to support their use for everybody all the time, or that we all need to run out and go fill up our Amazon carts with all of these different products just because there's good evidence for them. You know, just because there's good evidence for them doesn't mean that you need them or that you are going to benefit specifically. Some of this stuff, we're looking at elite runners, you know, the top 1% of runners who are so well-trained, they are so well-fueled that they're trying to shave milliseconds off of their finish times. And so anything that can give them that 1% or 0.1% edge is worth exploring because, I mean, literally Olympic gold medals are on the line here. But for a lot of us, you know, the cost and the potential benefit, a 1% improvement in, in our running, but, you know, pair that up with the cost and, and the expense of taking some of these things, 
we'd be better off just putting a little bit more time into our training or maybe putting a little bit more time into our baseline kind of foundational nutrition practices. If we spend a lot of time focusing on the supplements, but we haven't nailed these basics, we're never, ever going to reach our full potential. So I, I want to kind of start with that before I, I talk just very, very briefly about some of the supplements that do have some have some pretty good evidence to back up their use. Of course, knowing that it's it's not going to be for everybody all the time. So the first one, of course, is caffeine. So in people who are fast caffeine metabolizers, so they have a specific genetic uh, variation in the CYP1A2 gene that causes them to be a fast caffeine metabolizer, they actually do see a, a performance enhancement or a performance benefit from caffeine use before they exercise. And that kind of brings us to the question of like, what even is a supplement? Because most people would wake up in the morning and maybe have a cup of coffee but never think about the caffeine in the coffee that they're drinking as being like a sports supplement. But, but it is in that sense that it can really impact performance. And now what's interesting is that for slow caffeine metabolizers, people have the opposite genetic variant. They can sometimes see no impact of caffeine or sometimes caffeine can actually slow them down. So it's, there's a lot of evidence to support its use in some populations, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be right or good or even beneficial for everybody. And then we have creatine. And so creatine is another one that there is a growing body of evidence to support creatine. Uh, but again, it, that needs to come along with training. You know, we can't just take creatine and get stronger or build uh, more power potential just from taking it. We have to do the training to go along with it. We have things like dietary nitrate, so like what we would find in the beet, uh, like the beet drink shots, uh, sodium bicarbonate, beta alanine, and then of course things like our whey protein or our BCAAs. Again, those are things that people often don't think of as being a supplement. Like a lot of us keep our whey protein in our kitchen. We think of it more of a food than a supplement, but those really do fall in that category. Of course, there is you know good evidence to support their use sometimes in some places for some people. However, the number one performing in performance enhancing nutrient out there is still carbohydrates. So if we are not fueling adequately, getting in enough energy to support our training and support our racing, doesn't matter. All this other stuff that we could be taking doesn't matter. We still need the fuel. And so the number one performance enhancing nutrient out there is still carbs. Okay. Good to know. Um, just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five-day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. It's it. When it comes to like the supplements and the studies and the the claims and the promises they deliver like on the the bottles and that sort of stuff um i find it can be a tricky minefield because um i talked to christy ashwanden um she had her book like rest rest um can't remember what the the full title was anyway when i was chatting to her she was saying it's very tricky because a lot of these supplement companies can you know, cherry pick data or like have really dodgy studies that come out with a certain conclusion or they, they run a test and look for, you know, several different outcomes and then find one outcome that's kind of like what they're, they're suited for. And then they'll just promote that and say, okay, this is what 
the claims are and then they'll put it on the labels and put them on the bottles and all those sorts of things. And so I guess it can be a pretty tricky minefield. Um, have you seen that like for a runner looking for supplements, is there some guidance that you can have on that or like, you know, how they should navigate such a tricky minefield? Yeah. And, and that's such a great point to bring up because you're, you're so right that if we look to the companies themselves that are selling the products to tell us what we need, we are, we're going to be spending a lot of money because all mm. the stuff that's on the, the packages, the marketing that's on the packages is of course there with the intention to sell and, and to market these products. So when we're looking at like the research on some of these things and, you know, for me to say that, that there is a growing body of evidence or some pretty good research to support these, this information is coming from third party sources and from, you know, larger studies or more studies that have been replicated to show this. That's why nutrition science and supplement science like this moves very slowly because, you know, like I said a year ago, my opinion on, um, you know, collagen, for example, was was different than it is now because it just takes more time and more research to kind of look at how these things work and why they might work to understand, um, you know, what maybe is going to be beneficial for some people and, and also why and, and how much and when should we take it. So for the average runner who is trying to figure out what should I take, what supplements are going to work for me, you know, what should I do? The first thing, like don't even go to the supplement store. Don't don't start going on Amazon and, and looking for products. Don't start scrolling through Instagram and, and you know seeing what people are advertising or marketing and the influencers are out there doing. The first thing I want you to do is just focus on nailing the foundational stuff. So nutrition, being very tuned in to getting enough calories, getting enough protein, getting enough rest, sleep, recovery time, following a really balanced, proper training plan, like just nail those basic things that, that sometimes aren't very sexy. You know, it can be a little bit boring to hear that advice over and over again, but once you're doing all of that, well, then yeah, you know, if you want to maybe look at what else could I be taking or maybe what might be missing from my diet, then that's where you would want to sit down with someone like a dietitian who specializes in, in sport nutrition or in running nutrition to talk about what you eat, what your training looks like and come up with a personalized plan. Because if you look at sources that sell supplements to tell you what you need, you will buy a lot more than is really required. And, you know, the things that I listed, um, kind of on my short list there of stuff that there is some, some relatively good evidence out there for some individuals. Those are also things that generally are, are considered to be safe, but not always. And there's a lot of things out there that certainly aren't safe. We need to be very careful about how much of certain products we're taking. So we want to be careful um, in that sense as well. Mm. I like that because um, a lot of the physio advice for like injury recovery is very similar. People ask, oh, what about this massage gun? What about these stretches? What about all this sort of stuff? And I'm like, yeah. they're kind of like the one percenters. Like you want to do like your good, nice foundation, effective rehab really well. That's 90% of, 95% of what most injuries require. And then everything else, once you're doing that properly, everything else is just a 1% on top of that. And so I'm glad that sort of, you know, you have that same approach just quickly because I know we haven't even got through a lot of these questions yet. Um, mm -hmm. You talked about the caffeine and some people respond well, some people indifferent, some respond poorly. How can yes. you tell? How can someone know if they are a particular responder? 
Unfortunately, well, I mean, not unfortunately, but the only way to really tell is actually with a genetic test to look at mm. which genotype you happen to have. Because this metabolism gene, like this, this enzyme that is removing the caffeine from our bloodstream is found in the liver and actually doesn't have anything to do with how we feel the effects of caffeine. So the adenosine response that we get in the brain from caffeine exposure is not the same pathway that's actually removing the caffeine from our blood. So it's not as simple as like, oh, I, I feel the effects of caffeine a lot, therefore I must be you know, either a fast or a slow metabolizer. It's not something that we can tell just, you know, by, by looking at someone or, or by testing it out. But I will say, you know, um, genetic testing is definitely one option, but also for people to just pay attention as well to how caffeine makes them perform. You know, another thing that, that we want to look at is does caffeine actually help you or, you know, on a week that we maybe are drinking coffee before we go to the gym and a week that we're not, do we notice a difference in terms of how fast we're able to run, how long we're able to run and some of those performance indicators? Hmm. Okay. All right. Let's cover some more of these questions because I yeah. realize we haven't really done a lot. Jill asks, um, is food selection impacted by the seasons or the time of the year? And, and said that, um, for example, modifying your foods or calories when running in colder conditions. So um, what do you have for Jill? Yeah. So I really love this question because like from a nutrition philosophy standpoint, so for, for me as a dietitian, my nutrition philosophy is that, yes, it is very nice and beneficial to have different foods throughout different seasons. And we look at what is, is maybe in season, different things that are available, kind of what's fresh. I mean, where I, where I live, we have, you know, deadly cold winters. <laughs> and so there's a very big difference in, in kind of what we might eat summer versus winter, giving us slightly different nutrients, different types of fibers and, and phytonutrients. And there's also this value of changing it up throughout the year keeping food fun and interesting and different. You know, if we're eating the same thing day after day, week after week, month after month, it can get a little bit boring and repetitive. If we are having different things and enjoying different types of foods throughout the year, I think there is a lot of value in us, value of that for us. The question specifically around, is this required for performance? Not really. So it can add to our enjoyment of our meals. It can add to our enjoyment of eating and logistically make a lot of sense. But when we're training in either extreme temperature, like extreme hot or extreme cold, we do expend more energy regulating our body temperature. So at those opposite ends of the spectrum, our energy needs are going to be higher during training sessions. So during a run in, in kind of very hot days or, or cold days as compared to more moderate temperatures, you may need to bring more fuel with you on that run to kind of account for that and, and make sure you don't run out of fuel on a run. But because the rest of the day, we tend to spend more time in more like temperature controlled environments, there wouldn't be any like major impacts on our daily nutrition needs. So I, I wouldn't be looking at a big shift in calorie requirements or protein requirements or nutrient requirements, like just based on the season. But for like during that run, like during that activity, when you're outside, you know, for example, in the cold, um, you know, that it may be valuable to make sure you have some extra fuel for both the calorie burn perspective and also, you know, safety perspective too, just in case you're out there longer than you plan to be or something like that. <laughs> Is there something to be said for if you keep to eating 
um, foods, fruits, vegetables that are in season, like you said, it's good for variety and that sort of stuff. Are you getting more nutrients in that or because, you know, at the moment here in Melbourne, oranges are out of season and they're really expensive and I check them and they're imported from the US instead of here locally mm-hmm. and I taste them. I'm like, I haven't had oranges for a while. Let me, you know, fork out a, a bit more, a few more dollars and and then they taste horrible. And so yeah. is there something to be said for eating um, from a performance perspective if you are not or if you are gravitating towards foods and fruits that are in season, are you getting more, you know, nutrient dense type of foods? Yeah. Yeah. And, and absolutely for some nutrients, that is the case. So some nutrients are degraded just over time. So some nutrients just break down because it would, you know, that orange was picked who knows how long ago and then had to sit in yeah, a warehouse and then know. be <laughs> shipped over there, you know, all, all of those things. Um, but then also some it's light exposure other ones, it's heat exposure. So it just depends on the nutrient, kind of what what specifically can break it down. So yeah, the the fresher our food is, or the more local a food is, that definitely can play a role in the overall nutrition content. And you know, as most of us know, um, flavor wise and and taste wise, also can make a really big difference. You know, when we look at what's in season and what's fresh for us. But if we live in a place like, again, here I am in Winnipeg, Manitoba, where it is currently um, about minus 30 Celsius or or minus 14 Fahrenheit for our American friends. It is very cold outside. There is nothing growing here right now. Um, Frozen fruits and vegetables are actually a really good choice. And the reason they're such a great choice is because they're picked and they're frozen very soon after harvest and often quite close to where the harvesting is taking place. So there's more nutrient preservation that happens in those frozen products. So that's something that I would look at using more. Certainly this time of year for me, I'm making a lot more smoothies or or just using a lot more frozen um, fruit throughout my day because, you know, our oranges kind of are just maybe in season right now because we're a little bit closer to the U.S. than you are, but there's not much else that's going to be in season for another couple months. Yeah, great. Um, Karen asks, I guess this is why a lot of these questions come out of the woodworks is because like there's so many different directions you can take nutrition questions. Um, Karen asks, what should I eat before a run? And says, it's hard for me to get something to eat at 5 or 6 a.m. when you know, she wakes up to start running. So any advice for Karen? Yeah, absolutely. So if you don't have an appetite early in the morning, then go with liquids. Like if if the idea of eating food first thing in the morning kind of doesn't appeal to you, then don't. Sports drinks, uh, fruit juice, you know, those are great for a little bit of carbohydrate, but also great for some hydration. And I will meet runners who can't even really tolerate water when they wake up in the morning. Like their stomach just doesn't want anything. That can be a really big problem when it comes to like optimal fueling, prepping for race day, stuff like that. So we do want to start getting in the habit of training our gut to tolerate food and fluid better before we run. On a, you know, a three, four miler when we're heading out the door just for a short period of time, this isn't kind of the end of the world, right? It's it's probably not going to have the biggest impact, but for bigger, longer workouts, it becomes more important to make sure that we have enough fuel on board going into them. So for big workouts, I also like to recommend starting your fueling up process the night before. 
So having maybe a higher carb dinner, having an evening snack, trying to go into that workout with a little bit more fuel on board if possible, especially if you know that you're not someone who can eat a lot right before you head out the door in the morning. And this is really great because you are practicing your training, practicing working on training your gut to tolerate this stuff to prep you for race day. You know, if, if you're any, you know, a half marathoner, full marathoner, ultra marathoner, triathlete, you know, anybody who's doing these multi-hour activities, you just need enough fuel on board in order to do that. And, you know, I, I don't know, Brody, if you see this too, but I would say probably on a weekly basis, I see someone frantically posting in one of these online running Facebook groups to say, you know, my, my half marathon is this weekend. I usually train fasted. What should I eat for breakfast before my race two days from now? And unfortunately, that ship has kind of sailed, right? If you're used to never having anything to eat beforehand, then the morning of the race, you're trying to eat a half marathon's worth of calories before you you go to this run, you're probably going to have a really bad time. So instead, it's just about a little bit of gut training, starting small, starting slow. Maybe then after you've been doing the sports drink or the fruit juice, we can upgrade to half a banana, a few crackers, a slice of toast. And the next thing you know, you're, you're going to be eating a bowl of cereal and a banana and you're going to be good to go. Yeah. And um, for those who haven't listened to your last first episode on the Run Smarter podcast, you, you did talk a bit more about um, tolerating energy gels mid-race and sort of, you know, trying to build up your, train your gut to do that. Um, I was guilty of that. My first marathon, I got um, some carbohydrate gels in my race bag and I've never had them before in my life. I'm like, oh, these will be good for race day. Great, Why great. not? And it just went horrible. I tried. Um, I, I, I had one beforehand and I think that was okay um, because I think that was like designed, you know, have beforehand type of um, gel. And I think I tolerated that okay, but then I planned to have my next gel at like I think 16K or something like that, and I couldn't even get it down. I tried like having some water, tried sucking it down, and I had to have one mouthful, and it was just so sticky and I couldn't breathe, and I threw it away and then threw away the second one because I'm like, that was horrible. <laughs> it was a horrible experience but it obviously hadn't had the um tolerance or practice or you know experience to sort of do those within the performance so i'll put my hand up for that one i've made that mistake before and i'm assuming a lot of runners have as well well exactly and and you know if we're talking about kind of race specific situations, it's always a good idea too to know what's going to be available when on the course so that you can decide, you know, if you know a few months out that, oh, they're they're gonna be giving away goo brand gels. Um, this is not a, a plug for a specific brands, first one that came to mind. <laughs> um, then you can either, you know, plan to bring your own if you know you don't tolerate those, or you can practice with those. So when you get to the race, you don't have to bring as much of your own fuel. And so knowing what they're gonna serve and kind of having that as part of your race plan and, and being prepared for that is really, really helpful to, you know, alleviate some of the stress or issues that, that we can run into on the race course. Cause you don't want to put all that time and effort into training. And then, you know, unfortunately see it all kind of go down the drain on something, you know, something a little bit preventable or, or a little bit silly. Yeah. We have another Stephanie to submit the next question. Um, she asks, what should I eat immediately after exercise to enhance recovery? What do you say yes. to Stephanie? Wonderful, wonderful question. So after a run, we need two things to optimize our recovery. We need a source of protein 
and we need a source of carbohydrates. And the protein is there because the protein is what turn, breaks down, our, our body breaks it down into amino acids, which then our body absorbs and uses to repair and rebuild this damaged muscle tissue. So we have this recovery benefit of protein and we need that in order to repair and rebuild damaged tissue. What's also really interesting is, you know, we think about protein needs for strength athletes, right? Protein needs for bodybuilders. And then, you know, we kind of assume that they need so much more protein than a runner would, but that's not really the case. You know, the repetitive motion of running and the, um, the damage that we do to our muscles and the oxidation of protein that happens when we run, we also, we actually see that protein requirements for endurance athletes are, are really quite high as well. Like, you know, very comparative to people who are more, what we would call like a strength or a power-based athlete. So, um, don't underestimate the value and the power of protein for you as, as a runner. But then we also need the carbohydrates and the carbohydrates are there because they are replacing the energy that we store within our muscles. So in our muscle cells, we can store something called glycogen and we store this muscle glycogen, which is then what we use for energy during training. So after a workout, our muscles are very primed to bring in and absorb more glycogen. And so right after a workout, we have this great opportunity to replenish and replace muscle glycogen really quickly. But then also the carbohydrate we eat is actually fueling some of these recovery processes. So the, the damage repair and the building new muscle and all that stuff that's happening, that takes energy. And so the carbohydrates are there to, to help to fuel that too. So how much, how much protein, how much carb do we need? So post-workout, um, about 20 to 40 grams of protein is kind of our range. It's a big range. Uh, of course, it depends on the workout you just did, how long, how intense it was. Depends on you, the athlete, your body size, and also when your next meal is going to be. So if this is, you know, your post-workout breakfast, you're going to work, your next meal is not going to be for maybe quite a few hours then you definitely want to go on the higher end, right? So you definitely want to be going on, uh, you know, really a bigger meal to keep you full for longer. If it's like, okay, I'm going to have a little something, I'm going to get home, I'm going to get cleaned up, and I might eat again in an hour or two, then you can go a little bit on the smaller side. So it does depend a bit on the context of your day. So 20 to 40 grams of protein. And then for carbs, depends again on the training phase you're in and the overall volume of running that you're doing. So if you're running for, you know, an hour or more, five days a week, we're trying to recover from the previous workout, but we also have to be preparing for tomorrow's workout. This is especially true if we're doing two a days where it's like, we're trying to simultaneously recover and fuel up and recover and fuel up. Like we're just always having to do all of these things. We need a lot more carbs. So we'd be looking at like a three to one ratio of, of grams of carbs to grams of protein. In a more of a base building phase, or maybe if you don't have a workout plan for another couple of days, that ratio could be as little as one to one grams of carbs to grams of protein. So it does depend on the overall volume, the overall um, training intensity, uh, but you've got kind of some context there for what that might look like. Yeah. You mentioned the window of opportunity for the carbohydrates. Is it the same for the protein? Yeah. And, and what's really interesting about this is there's so much back and forth, I'll call it. Uh, and, and you probably <laughs> see it too, you know, all this That's nutrition <laughs> information, it's, it's conflicting, it's confusing. Um, and when we look at this sort of window of opportunity for protein, the research is a little bit more mixed in terms of like how soon 
how urgent is it? How much, um, you know, kind of disservice are we doing to ourselves and to that workout by not getting in the protein right away? And what I find really interesting about these window of opportunity conversations is that we're always really hyper-focused on the protein part of the recovery, right? The conversation is always around the protein and the protein timing. You, you rarely hear people really talking about carbohydrate timing and when we should get that carbohydrate in post-workout. But there is a benefit to having the carbohydrate as soon as we can after a workout because we do see that rate of muscle glycogen uptake uh, you know, being the best very shortly, kind of, you know, within that first hour or so after we train. All that to say though, and, and this is something that I say to my clients all the time is, you know, as much as there is a benefit to getting something in as quickly as possible, I don't want people to like be very stressed about this, you know, just because we don't get our muscle glycogen repletion starting within the first half hour of, of finishing a workout doesn't mean that that's like a shut off, right? There's no door that closes and then, you know, sorry, too bad. You, you can't get any more glycogen in there. You know, the show's over. We're able to do, you know, we're always able to store muscle glycogen. Like our body is always able to do it. It's just about kind of that rapid uptake. So it's great to do what's recommended or what's perfect. And, you know, like we said before, this is a starting point, but it's more important to do what's reasonable. It's more important to do what's logical. So that's, that's kind of the guideline. That's the recommendation, but I want you to take that and I want you to figure out how that's going to work best for you. Yeah. Plenty of good nuggets in there for people to take away. Um, we had Mick ask about the evidence regarding nitrates and nitrites. I think you pronounce it, uh, in cured meats. He says that, um, it's a regular feature when he's traveling and racing, um, are they safe to consume on a regular basis? So um, maybe you can just talk about nitrates, nitrites, like their influence, and then we'll dive into Mick's question. Yeah, for sure. So one thing that I, I want to talk about is the nitrates that we find from plant foods versus the ones that we find from animal foods and, and making a distinction here, because if you were listening and you're listening carefully, you would have heard me talk about nitrates, specifically like the beet shots. Uh, those type of products in my list of supplements. Now we're having another conversation about nitrates and potential dangers around nitrates. And a lot of people are, are going to be thinking, what? <laughs> you know, we're talking about the same thing, but they are a little bit different. So the nitrates that we find in plant foods, so these dietary nitrates that come from leafy green vegetables, they come from things like beets. Naturally in food, if you eat leafy green vegetables or beets, you are getting nitrates in your diet they have a lot of benefits. So they have a lot of health benefits for us. And they're something that we should eat regularly, which is one of the reasons why leafy green vegetables are so good. And we dietitians tell you to eat them all the time. When we find nitrates, and these are typically like added nitrates that are used as preservatives in, in certain meat products, when the nitrates combine with some of the proteins in the meat, then we get this conversion into potentially harmful substances. That is what can increase our risk for colon cancer when we have a lot of exposure to these processed meats. And so that's the distinction. It's, it's the combination of the nitrates with the animal protein that can cause us, uh, you know, cause an increase in health risk. So the, the question specifically around, are they safe to consume on a regular basis? It depends on what regular means for you. 
how often, you know, how much and, and that sort of thing. So the, the one study that I can kind of point to here was a World Health Organization study. What they found was that 50 grams per day, so on, per day, 50 grams, which is about the equivalent of five slices of bacon, did increase colon cancer risk by 18%. So when we say regular basis, you know, for you, is that once a week? Is it once a month? You you know, that we kind of have to think about it in those terms. It's all a bit relative. But if this is something that you are eating, um, you know, kind of exposed to or seeing on on a daily basis or even just a couple of times a week, I would start to work in some alternatives at least some of the time. So if we're talking about, you know, sandwiches, who doesn't love a, a good sandwich, but maybe we want to do like egg salad sandwiches, or maybe we want to do like tuna or salmon or, or something that just isn't going to be a processed meat product. Something that can help reduce our risk overall, um, you know, if we, are, if we are talking about some of the health risks with these cured meats, would be a plant-rich diet. So again, we want to fill up the rest of our diet, fill up the rest of our plate with those fruits and vegetables and whole grains and things, things that are high in fiber and give us lots of antioxidants. Okay. Wow. Um, definitely rich of knowledge there. Let's, um, as we're wrapping up, I'd like to ask what are some common misconceptions that you see in the running community? Like you've already mentioned, you see some people talk about what do I eat before a, a race when I usually, you know, train fasted, uh, those sort of things that pop up. Are there any other, you know, sort of topics or questions or confusions that people have that we haven't yet discussed today? Yeah, I, I think overall, one of the biggest things is just that people tend to think about nutrition and, and eating and even health as this very kind of black and white or, or all or nothing thing. And we often get caught up in, is this good? Is this bad? I can have, I should have this all the time or never. And, and sort of these extremes with how we eat and, and how we approach food. And I think that can get us in a little bit of trouble sometimes because we, you know, need flexibility in our lives and, and we need to be able to live in the real world and, and navigate living in the real world and not be so hard on ourselves and, and have these expectations that we have to do everything so perfectly. So that that's a big one. You know, if, if you're struggling with your nutrition and you're struggling, especially with consistency, you find that you, you know, you want to start a diet, you want to eat healthy, but it's hard to do it all the time. You know, sometimes we need to look at, is the diet maybe a little bit too restrictive? Are we maybe trying to do things a little bit too perfectly and it just isn't realistic for us? So that's definitely the, the first big one. And then I think also shifting our focus away from, thinking about food just in the context of, of like calories and, and weight and, and always trying to eat less and move more and, and some of those things that we hear all the time. And instead looking at food as something that has tremendous value for us. You know, we, we've talked a lot today about what you should eat as a runner and things that we need more of as runners. And that's how I want people to view food is, okay, I need this nutrient. I need that nutrient. I need to fuel my body with these things. Because when we have a better mindset around food and relationship with food, and we don't see it as this black and white thing, it can just make all of this advice so much easier to implement and so much easier to do consistently and sustainably. Yeah, I can definitely see a lot of runners taking things out and hating the entire experience, being like, oh, this is awful. I love these foods that I'm no longer eating. Um, but like you say, you can make it more enjoyable and sustainable rather than just 
making these wild swings from one side to the other because you know you are taking things away it's it's an interesting topic and so many people love eating so many people love food especially certain types of food and if you know they find that it might not be as good for them as as some other foods then you know it becomes a a guilty kind of process rather than enjoying sort of the process yeah, exactly. And I mean, we want the foundation of our diet to be, you know, mostly unprocessed, whole foods, very plant forward. Um, you know, we, we want to definitely have that because we know that there is tremendous value and benefit in all of that, both from, uh, you know, looking at, at health and, and health risks, but also just day to day getting us the vitamins and minerals and, and all that stuff that we need to be a healthy person. Um, but that doesn't have to come at the absolute expense of all of the fun things that we that we enjoy eating. It's just about you know balance and moderation, which again is is you know the same advice that we've been hearing for a long time. But uh, I think that there's always something to be said for reminding ourselves of that, because rarely does absolute restriction or sort of militant approaches to to eating that that rarely works. Yeah. Um- Stephanie, you mentioned at um, the start of this episode that you do have some courses. You said um, Fuel for Runners uh, was the name of the course. Can you explain exactly what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So this is great for runners who, um, you know, are are needing help specifically with their nutrition, and they really want to learn more about fueling and eating like a runner. So it's a self-paced course. So there's on-demand modules that you get access to takes you through the basics and the foundations of performance nutrition for runners. So looking at uh, what you're eating right now, eating enough to fuel your training, avoiding the pitfalls of low energy availability and relative energy deficiency, which is a, a huge issue for so many runners out there. We talk about nutrition for injury prevention and recovery. We go through what to eat before you run, during your run, after your run, hydration, um, covering all of those things. And I've also included some bonus resources just to help put it into context in the sense that we have uh, entire like sample meal plans and and collections of recipes and, and things like that. Because, you know, we can hear all of these numbers and, and we need this many grams of protein and this many grams of carbs and, and these ratios and stuff. But the question at the end of the day is, okay, but how do I translate that into food? What do I make for dinner? And, you know, to kind of give you that real life context. So it's a great little course. Um, you can obviously sign up and, and register for that anytime, work through the modules at your own pace, take advantage of some of those bonus resources and ask questions when you need to. So there's, there's also an opportunity in there. If you're stuck on something, you need some help, you can submit a question and I will be happy to answer it and help you along. Can it be found on your website? And if so, what is the website? Yeah, so you can get to that through my Instagram. So if you find me at Steph the Runner's Dietitian, obviously the the link in my profile, everyone's familiar with with uh, the link in in profile. And if you go there, you'll find the Fuel for Runners eCourse. Excellent. Um, and then you have the Fuel Run Recover podcast, which um, I know is like I say, it's going to be extremely popular. And looking forward to seeing how that evolves. Uh, I sure as hope so. Things go on. Yeah. <laughs> The uh, one thing I I love about the advice that you give, you're obviously very experienced and knowledgeable on all these different variety of topics. But um, one thing that's quite apparent is your ability to change your opinion on things. Like when I 
first, like the, the gurus that I follow and the health professionals that I follow, um, it's usually a good sign if I can see that they're changing their minds or changing their opinions or just like, I guess, redirecting, um, slowly gravitating towards other opinions and like taking everything on board. Because like you said, with the the collagen supplements, like your, your ideas and your um, uh, opinions around that topic is slightly changing um, as new evidence is coming out and you're sort of seeing all these things where someone else can be like highly on the side of, okay, no collagen supplements. It's all a waste of time. It's all a big gimmick. And, you know, then some studies can come out showing the opposite and they say, okay, this is why this study is rubbish. This is why all this study has these limitations and they kind of double down and stick to their guns and it doesn't show growth. It doesn't show like a a growth mindset or, um, you know, and people should steer clear of those people because especially if they've got like, incentives or like motivations behind sticking to their guns. I think there's a, some alarm bells there, but um, love hearing that, you know, you're so knowledgeable in all these topics, love hearing that you're open to considering all the available evidence and the new emerging evidence. And then sort of, if there's a balance in things, if there's some pros and cons for something, you're considering all of that sort of stuff. And so the advice that you're providing is top notch. And like I say, most people will gravitate towards this podcast because, um, nutrition such a popular one amongst runners so good luck with that and thank you for coming on to the podcast and sharing all your wisdom thank you so much brody it is always a pleasure chatting with you and uh and learning from you as well i'm a big fan of of your show and i love answering your listener questions they're always really good ones and that concludes another run smarter lesson i hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a run smarter scholar Because when I think of runners like you who are listening, I think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge, who don't just learn, but implement these lessons, who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again, who want to take an educated, active role in their rehab, who are looking for evidence-based long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your Run Smarter path.